Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Fish Bites. My name is Danny Martinez. I am your host for the day. And there have been some changes this week in Miami. Josh Rosen is now the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. The Marlins won a weekend series last weekend and split a series throughout the week. But one thing that has not changed is the game plan for this podcast moving forward. And although it might sound a little cliche, the reason that that did not change is because of you. I start off today really with a thank you. And again, I understand how absolutely cliche that sounds, but thank you. I asked you for feedback and you gave it to me. You gave me so much that right before starting this podcast, I was joking with my wife um, about how humbled but excitement I am. And it's not just lip service. I don't want to create fake excitement for this. It's true. I have a document filled with the feedback, with things that you guys wanted to discuss and, and see implemented in the podcast. Uh, so much so, quite frankly, that, that I have three points. The first one being thank you. The second one being that if you don't hear something this week or next week that you said, it's not because I didn't listen to it. It's because there have been such an immense amount of topics and dialogue and segment ideas that we won't get to it. <laughs> we won't get to it in a week. Um, you know, I'm going to try to get to as many of the amazing things as as I can, because I really believe that this has to be dynamic. And if I asked you for the feedback, I want you to feel comfortable and see the changes and the conversations that you want to see take place. But the reason I preface that is because I don't want you to think that if we don't talk about it today or tomorrow or next week, rather, that it was because I didn't see it or because I didn't care for it. That's not the case. Everything that you, although some say feedback is overrated, everything that you have implemented and you have asked me to talk about will be discussed. The only other thing I want to say with that is that just because there was so much feedback or because I'm telling you that we won't get to it, to it all in the first few weeks does not mean that I want it to stop. I want you to, again, write on that notepad. I want you to, again, type it on your phone and send it to me. You guys did a good job with the email and the private messages. I want you to find any resource that you can so that we can make this podcast as dynamic as possible. So for today, what are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to start off with a recap of the week and a preview of the upcoming week. This was something that a lot of people suggested. And of course, I, I agree with that. If this is going to be an MLB product and it's going to be a weekly product, we need to talk about what happened the previous week and a nice little preview moving forward. Something that a few handful of individuals also said um, was that they loved what we do on Earning Their Stripes, the podcast dedicated to Marlins Farm System. We have a segment where we choose one position prospect and one pitching prospect. And we really highlight that player or those two players because of what they did that weekend where they're trending. A lot of individuals wanted me to try to implement something like that in a major league setting. And I think that we can do it. I think that clearly there will be repeated selections because the sample size is simply smaller. I don't have a, a bunch of affiliates to go to. It is just the major league roster. But I do believe that it's something that we can do. So we're going to start off there with the recap of the week, and then we're going to look at a trending pitcher and position player of the Marlins. Then we're going to transition to what I'm going to be speaking or what I'm going to call the dialogue segment. It's going to be very similar to mailbag segments that individuals like Joe Fasaro and Wells Dunsbury have on Twitter and in their specific outlets where the fans or, um, you know, even at times the players ask a question and 
they get their feedback on it in the articles. I want to introduce that here in a very uh, podcast, obviously, oriented type of fashion, which is why I want it to be dialogue. You ask me, and I already have an immense amount of these, ask me for questions and topics that you want to discuss, and I will bring a segment up and I will discuss that particular question throughout that segment. The reason that I want it to be a dialogue is because unlike the articles where the conversation ends as soon as the article is published, I want you to respond back. The idea, the concept should be that you give me a conversation piece, I give you my opinion, only mine, it doesn't reflect anyone else's. I give you my opinion and then you give me yours. Whether by coming on the show like I asked last week and I've had a handful of uh, volunteers for that, I guess we can say, or through email again, or Twitter, or whatever the case is, I want it to be a dialogue. So some of the ones that we're going to talk about today, because I want to give you a flavor of what you guys were asking. Danny, when does Miami compete again? Danny, how many of the current roster, active roster, make up that next core for competition? Who are they? Who should we be focusing on at the major league level every night in, in year two of a rebuild? And then actually, one of my favorites, and I jotted down the individual's name that asked this, and I'm sorry that I don't have it with me right now. Which previous Marlins team does this one remind you of? I loved that question. I love that question because of the research that it yielded. I got to fall in love with previous teams all over again and see the comparisons and see the youth and the mixture of veterans. But I loved that question more so because of the hope that it instills. And it will not be an overly positive answer here, but because of the hope that instills when you look back at teams that may have not been as good as fans wanted them to be, if you're only focusing on the win-loss, but that were just a few years away and that you could see the parts developing right in front of your eyes. So those are the four questions that we're going to look at today on the dialogue segment. And if you don't hear your question, that's simply because it's in my document on the queue to be answered in another recording two, three weeks down the line. But give me more. Give me more. I want to have 10 weeks ready of questions so that I can get to them. After the dialogue segment, we're going to jump into some news. We actually have some relatively good news um, and important news this week. Uh, that had to do with finances as well as interest of the fan base and other things that might impact the way that this team is ran and the way that this team is able to use their funds moving forward. So we're going to look at that towards the end part of the podcast as a little news refresher. But we're going to start off with our recap of the week. As I mentioned before, the Marlins won their first series. Now, I'm aware that we published this podcast Monday. So by the time you were listening to this on Monday, the Marlins had already obviously won that series against the Nats the weekend. But since I recorded this on Thursday, we hadn't gotten to celebrate that yet. So hoorah, let's celebrate that. The Marlins won the series against the Nets, the Nats last weekend. They went and then traveled to Cleveland, oh, Cleveland, where they split the series as a two-game series. Each team took home one win. Then they went to Philly, nice and cold, lost three out of four. They won the four and lost the last three. Zach Eflin actually pitched a complete game. I believe it was the first of his career. And quite frankly, if we're all being honest with each other, pitchers are probably going to get certain milestones this year and certain firsts this year against the Marlins because even though it is year two of a rebuild, they aren't hitting right now. And there simply is not an answer other than certain developmental players, which we'll talk about, really taking the stage. 
As for what we have this upcoming week, the Marlins are going to have a two-game home series against the Indians. So that was one of these uh, interesting four-game series that are split away and home. And then they're going to be facing the Atlanta Braves during the weekend. Go to the park. Right? I'm not an advertisement for the Marlins, but go to the park this week. I love interleague play. If you do so and you like the 97 World Series, do it. Go see the Indians. Go see the Fish uh, play too, Tuesday and Wednesday. And then go see the Braves this weekend. Go see the Braves this weekend because what I want you to understand is that they are the hope for where we want to be in a few years. Talent up and down the lineup that comes from prospects, although, yes, there are some carryover veterans there, and pitching. Now, Braves Nation might want a little bit more pitching, definitely some more relief help, but quite frankly, they're in a beautiful spot. They are the example of a rebuild conducted well through drafts, through international signings, and they are where the Marlins hope to be in a few years. Pitcher, I said that I was going to do a trending player. If you do not guess which pitcher I'm going to choose for this week, and really for this season, because the reality is that as we start doing this weekly, I'll only look one week behind, but for the first time that we introduce this segment, let's go ahead and take a look at the whole season. You would have to guess I'm going Caleb Smith, right? Dr. K. I mean, if I gave you someone else, I would hope that you would just turn off the podcast and you would go listen to, to whoever else you have queued up because the reality is, is that the only, not the only, but the definitely the most deserving pitcher is Dr. K. He's obviously five games into the season, small sample size, just under 30 innings pitch, but a beautiful 2.17 ERA that is not artificially inflated by defensive ability behind him or by the shift, which was a question we have queued up for next week. My thoughts on the defensive shifting that the Marlins are doing. And it's not inflated by any of that because we can look at his fielding independent pitching measures and his FIP is 2.65, right? What, what, what your FIP does is it eliminates variables outside of the pitcher's control by assuming that balls in play are dealt with at an average play pace of MLB defense. Right, so it it you don't have this amazing defense behind you, or you don't have this awful defense behind you. What would your ERA look like? And his is two point six five. So again, this is not an artificially uh, produced ERA of two point one seven. No, he's right there. He's just simply put, he's that good. He's currently carrying an eleven point four eight strikeouts per nine innings. He's only walking. Let's see here, two two point one seven. So that's 11 and a half to 2.1. And how is he doing it? Right? Because we see what's happening. I mean, it's, it's, we see it every night. He is the ace of this staff at the moment. It's why some people, um, there's actually some Miami media disagreement between a few people that I, I, I look up to, but some individuals are saying, hey, why not trade Caleb Smith? Why not trade Caleb Smith and get a top 50 unanimous consensus bat? Right, because we need that right now. The Marlins need some kind of offensive production, and, and they have a lot of pitching to trade away from. Why not use K uh, Caleb Smith at his, what some might think, his highest peak and get that value? I don't know how I feel about that, and we'll talk a little bit about that next week, or really actually as we get closer to a trade deadline or if rumors start to stir up a little bit. But the reason that those rumors are even in place to begin with is because of how he's pitching. And the question then is, why? What happened to Dr. K that all of a sudden hitters, hitters can't tee him up? 
Now, I, I won't pretend to know the answer. It's going to be a mix of of many different things. It's going to be him studying his his the opposing hitters. It's going to be him working on certain things. But there's there's one thing that is so evident, not even from the advanced stats, not even from the metrics, just by looking at him. It's timing and it's movement. Timing and movement with a pitcher is an incredible weapon. You don't have to throw a hundred to be feared because if you could keep a hitter's timing off and if you can precisely move your pitches and put them where you need to, you're in good spot. Caleb is abusing timing and movement right now. And my theory behind that is all comes from his changeup. Last year, he used his changeup at a rate of 13.7%. 13.7% is not a lot. This year, he's up to 23.2% usage. And it's not just usage. He's not just throwing and tossing away a changeup. He is effectively getting people out with it. And even though the K numbers are beautiful, what's even more beautiful is when we take one step further and we look at StatCast by Baseball Savant. Go look them up. It's, I mean, it's, it's something that MLB does. It's a beautiful source for you to see. Baseball Savant StatCast looks at some of the deeper metrics and some of the deeper things that we can't see artificially, that we can't see, not rather artificially, but that we can't see at a shallow a statistical reading. The man's destroying people, and he's destroying people with soft contact. The hard hit rate against him, right? The higher, the better. He's in the 95th percentile. That's elite. He's in the 95th percentile. No one is hitting anything off of him with any kind of velocity, with any kind of hard hit percentage. His exit velo off of him, 94th percentile. Just, just ridiculous. When you are in the top five of anything that you do in life, even if it's walking, I don't mean that in baseball. I mean, like, if you really are just good at walking, you're elite at it. Caleb Smith is in the 95th and 94th percentile in hard hit percentage and exit velocity off of him. Why? Because he's mixing that beautiful fastball changeup slider mix, and he's getting people off their timing. And when you make contact off of Caleb Smith, it's either you're hitting it down into the dirt where the defense, even if it's at league average, is taking care of it, or you're getting under it and popping it up. If you ask Caleb Smith, he'll tell you what it is. But the only thing that I can see is that change-up usage. Caleb Smith, pitcher of the week, trending the right way. Position player of the week, his backstop. Jorge Arforo is amazing. <laughs> Jorge Arforo has a lot of signs of possible regression, and we could talk about that in a second. But he's amazing. Uh, Jeremy Taché, I hope I'm saying your last name right, man from Five Reasons Sports, put out an article. Basically, uh, it's an opinion piece, basically saying, you know, the Mons already won, won the JT Ramuto trade. And quite frankly, I, I, I really don't agree. I mean, it's, it's an opinion piece and it's a small sample size and, you know, it's supposed to create some sort of reaction, but I, I don't disagree. I, I agree. When you look at that trade at face value, even when it happened, it was a fantastic trade. But the way that Jorge Alfaro is playing all right, the pass balls is still an issue, and there are clear red flags that I'm about to talk about on the offensive side. But the way he is playing is showing that he is exactly who they thought they were when they targeted him. And I'll remind you again that last uh, last episode I said it, he was right behind JT Ramuto in total war for catchers. 
So it's not like this is a surprise. He slashed 297, 342, 500 with five home runs. By the way, all of those home runs, opposite field. What does that tell me, Danny? Well, what that tells me is that, number one, he knows how to drive the ball when he's not on it. And that the man has ridiculous power, which you could see in editing batting practice that you go see him. And also by just looking at a picture of him. So then why am I saying that there might be an issue for regression? Here's the thing. BA, BIP is batting average on balls in play. This is often misused as a way of looking at someone's luck, right? If they have a high batting average on balls in play, then what you're saying is, well, they're eventually going to regress because eventually it's going to find a glove. And because they're just getting really lucky that when they hit the ball, it finds a hole. Now, I say it's often misused because you have to know how to use BABIP. You have to know how to say that this person's batting average on balls in play is going to lead to regression. And here's, here's my opinion, really very close to fan graphs. This is not just a measure on luck. See, if a person's career has, con they're consistently like, let's say 350 in this measure, 350, 350, and then all of a sudden they're at 420, then you can say, okay, he's going to fall back down because it doesn't follow his profile as a hitter. Now, to understand this, let's, let's put out some measures. Uh, the average batting average on balls in play is 300. The understanding is that line drive hitters and hitters that have a very high exit velo can stay around 350 without regressing. Alfaro is over 400, and he's been over 400 his entire major league career. His entire major league career. Last year, which was the year that we could look at and say, well, he was there for quite some time. I mean, he had a lot of he had a lot of at bats. Maybe it should have stabilized, even though it takes really about 600, 800 play appearances for your batting average and balls in play to stabilize. He was still around 406, which is high. It's high. I told you the average for MLB is 300. The average for really solid contact or not contact, but exit velo hitters is 350. 406 is still high. The year before he was 420 and this year he's 415. That is an indicator of someone whose average and slugging and on base is going to dip because, quote unquote, people will say he's getting lucky. Here's my two points. One, I do believe that he's going to dip. Two, I don't think he's going to fall off the face of the earth like other people think. And, and the reason for that is also found in Baseball Savant StatCast. Because what did I say Fangraphs said about individuals that could stabilize at 350? That they are line drive hitters and that they have high exit velocity, right? Jorge Alfredo's exit velocity is in the 85th percentile. He's good. He hits the ball hard. He's going to strike out a lot. He's going to swing at pitches outside of the zone a lot. But when he hits the ball, he's going to barrel it, which is why he also has all of his home runs opposite field. This is what happens. So yes, absolutely. Do I think it's going to drop back? Uh, yes. Do I think that he's going to fall off the face of the earth like a lot of individuals want to think that he will? I don't think so. Now, it's three years of him hitting over 400 with batting average on balls on play. Is that going to sustain? No. I think this is someone who will be in that 350 category. Because when he makes contact, he smashes the ball. There's no weak contact coming out of this man's bat. Which means that the defense has a lot less time to react to it. And that if not, it's usually going over the fence. So Jorge Alfaro, 
come on the show one time. We're going to talk about just what makes you awesome and just the ridiculous start that you're having and how good it must have felt to hit an opposite field home run against the Phillies. But while, yes, there are individuals that will say that he's in due for regression, and while I think that regression can happen, I do not think that he is trending down. We're going to talk about him in a second in, in our dialogue piece, but simply put, he deserves to be the position player of the week. Now, let's go into our dialogue. I said that the dialogue would be the uh, meat and potatoes, really, of the podcast because you guys just gave me a lot of questions and I need to get through them. So we're going to go through the four that I teased you with earlier before, and we're going to go through them relatively quickly. The, the first three, as I maybe had mentioned, sound like rebuilding questions. When does Miami compete again? How many of the current roster will make the next core? Who should we be focusing on at the major league level? And I don't blame people for asking rebuilding questions. You know, I love those questions. Give it to me. We are in year two of a rebuild. You should be asking these type of questions. So let's start. When does Miami compete again? I'll start by saying that it matters how you operationalize the word compete. If compete for you means going to the stadium every day and the team will compete every single day, I'm going to tell you that by next year, you should be able to go to the to the stadium and fulfill that. I mean, they're going to compete every day this year, just the offense isn't there. They're going to compete because of the baby-faced aces, but the offense isn't there. And actually, I'll just put in a little plug. I just wrote something on the baby-faced aces and where they would stand if their current numbers, understanding that there's a small sample size, would uh, continue throughout the year. And ladies and gentlemen, the answer is top five in Miami Marlins history. If you go look, go look on Fish Stripes, right? Don't take my word for it. Take my research for it. If you go look at the numbers, they're a top five staff in the Marlins history if their numbers were to continue throughout the year. So they're always going to be competing this year. The problem is that the offense is simply nowhere to be found at the moment because it's in the minors or it's in someone, uh, in someone in another organization's farm system. And, you know, Miami will have to acquire them via the pitching, which for what it's worth, I know I'm going on a tangent here, but it makes sense for what we're talking about. Um, you know, just just breathe a little bit about the offense not being where it needs to be. Just take a breath. This season isn't about wins and losses. This season is about development. And if you give me the option to have pitching, I mean, ridiculous steps of pitching from the majors to, to low A, but having no offense or the inverse, which is a lot of offense and no pitching, I'm going to take what the Marlins have every single time. Because it's a lot easier to trade away pitching and acquire hitting than vice versa. So breathe. The offense will come. It'll come from people like Victor Victor Mesa. It'll come from people like Monte Harrison, who's destroying the minor leagues right now and will be a guest on earning their stripes this week. It'll come from a high OBP power guy like Isan Diaz or Jose Devers, who is a glove for a shortstop, no doubt about it, but is also showing significant increase with the bat. Heck, even Magnir Sierra is showing that he could hit a bit. Head out in Carnacion, there's people, there's prospects down there. Danny, not everyone will make it. I understand that. Which is why you're going to have to either sign bats to come down. Jose Abreu next year for a space. Let's see if that happens. Or you trade from this immense amount of pitching that you have for bats. So again, will they compete because of the baby-faced aces? Yes. If you're talking about a competitive team, I say next year. 
next year in terms of competitive as in you know they're nearing 500 you're talking about a 75 team trajectory 80 something to that extent probably not getting to 500 next year but nearing 500 now if you operationalize competing as no i want them to be competing for a wild card spot then i don't see that next year but if you ask me again in 2021 i think i see it i think i could see the team that now is getting a flavor of competing and the layers of pitching depth is now up Sixto sanchez jordan yamamoto nick Nider. by that time they should be up and we'll see who makes it who doesn't who gets sent to the bullpen who gets traded away for hitting but by 2021 i could see a team getting closer to the 80 81 82 83 kind of wild card flavor tasting records and then there's going to be the people that say that's not competing danny getting near 500 is not competing becoming or getting getting close to a wild card team is not competing competing is competing danny it means i want to see a team that is going to make the playoffs or is going to get very close and going to be in it the last week of the season and will compete when you're um, when they're in it my answer is all right i hope you're patient enough to wait till 2022 by 2022 the marlins baby-faced aces will have had two three years of pro ball major league baseball experience some will be here some probably won't some might get traded some might be traded for pitching some might be relegated to the bullpen i, I don't know where they're going to be but they're going to be experienced and then all the layers of depth again six all the way to someone who might have an eta of three years from now like jordan holloway or braxton garrett or trevor rogers will be up or close to it too much pitching not to compete too much assets not to you know trade for hitting or be able to develop some sense of hitting in the farm system because again i don't believe that all of our prospects i'm not naive enough to think that baseball scholars say 33 percent of your prospects reach your ceilings probably less than that i understand that i don't expect all of diaz and monte and mesa to all become above average starters but there is hitting here there is hitting here and i think and here's the caveat that if there isn't, there's enough pitching to go get it. So when does Miami compete? Depends on what you mean by compete. But if you want playoff baseball, look for 2022 and ahead. That's an 85 win team. Two, how many of the current roster make up the next core? My answer is 40%. Somewhere between 30 and 40%. I know I'm using a big confidence interval there, but somewhere between 30 and 40%, which then leads to the third question, which is, okay, well, who are they? And who should then we be focusing on at the major league level? I love this question because I'm tired of the individual that gets really upset with the win-loss of a rebuilding year two team because I, I don't understand it. We know what we're getting into. These guys are going to compete every single day, and they're going to go out. I mean, this is a testament to it in Philly. What they, were, we were, they were down 10-1 or something to that extent, came back 10-9, and then lost 12-9 because uh, ninth inning blunders, eighth inning blunders. I mean, I get it they're going to compete every day. I'm not saying that they're not, but I think everyone has a dosage of reality. We're not looking here for wins and losses. What, what you should be focusing on at the MLB level to answer the question are players who you think are going to make up that 30 to 40%. Players who you think are going to be an above average contributor or an average contributor to the next competitive Miami Marlins core. I mean, that's the answer. And then if you tell me who, here it is. 
I think when you're looking at hitters, there's two answers that no one here is going to argue with me about. Brian Anderson, a third or at right field. My two cents, he's our third baseman. Leave him at third. Figure something out for outfield. Leave him at third. And Jorge Alfaro, the catcher, who we just spent five minutes talking about. Those are the two players that I don't think anyone is going to argue with me about being the next competitive Miami Marlins core. The magical million-dollar question is, who are we adding to that? Now, on my list, I have three. And you're going to guess who it is. The third one is Lewis Brinson. I'm giving you all time to roll your eyes and get angry. My answer is Lewis Brinson because Lewis Brinson is a 24-year-old player who's no longer a prospect but still has all those tools. They didn't magically evaporate this year. The reason I say 24 is not because it's an excuse. It's because he actually is that age and the average Major League Baseball rookie is actually that age too. 24.4 is the average Major League Baseball rookie's age. So I'm sorry that everyone is so excited to give up on a player that is the same age as the average rookie. Do I think, and this is another question I got a lot, do I think he needs to be demoted? Maybe a full reset, go down to double A, triple A, see what's happening? Possibly. Do I think that it's ridiculous and ludicrous to continue hitting him in front of the pitcher? Yes. And I know a lot of people disagree with that. Just check my Twitter feed. I'd rather him hit ninth. Hit him ninth. Stop hitting him in front of the pitcher. Do I think that the demotion would be good? Sure. Do I think that him being the fourth outfielder per reports and getting pinch hit spots is ludicrous? Yes. But he's still someone you tune in to see because he still has a potential of being someone that you look at as the core moving forward. Lewis Brinson will be a part of that 40%. It's just about in what capacity. Pitching staff. Yeah, this answer is easy. The baby faced aces. That's they're part of 40%. Sandy Alcantara, Alcantara, Caleb Smith, Trevor Richards, and Pablo Lopez. They're going to be a part of it unless someone gets traded. The conversation keeps going back and forth. Who do you trade? Who do you not trade? My very quick two cents on that. You don't trade Sandy and you don't trade Pablo for anything other than just a massacre of a deal. It doesn't even have to be, it can't even be a fair deal. These are young, talented arms. Has to be a ridiculous deal. Some are a lot more willing to depart with either Trevor Richards because they might see him as a bullpen piece moving forward or Caleb Smith because of the age. I just have one note on the age. I don't care as much about the age with a pitcher as I do as wear and tear, especially if that pitcher is not successful by gassing 97 miles per hour. If this was a 27-year-old who only depended on 97 miles per hour, I would worry about regression with age. But he's not. And he doesn't have a million starts under his belt. Give me the 27-year-old that has a fresh arm over the 24-year-old that has 400 innings gassing people at 100 miles per hour. So I understand the concept of, well, he's a little older. I would feel a little bit better getting some hitting for him. And if that happens, I'm okay. But don't always use the age factor here. Because he's still young when it comes to the wear and tear on his arm and his elbow. So, so far, hitters we should be focusing on at the major league level. Brian Anderson, Jorge Adfo, and Lewis Brinson for as long as he's here. Starting staff, the baby-faced aces. 
minus Jose Urania, who I think eventually could be a bullpen piece. And talking about the bullpen, at the moment, I would say Tyron Guerrero is the easiest fit for me to answer there. Nick Anderson is just lights out and Tyler Kinley. These are the three that I would say could survive until 2022 when we're ready to compete. Unless they get traded, we're still in a point where we should be investing in acquiring hitting if we can. If someone presents you an acceptable deal for Caleb Smith or for Tyron Guerrero or Nick Anderson, and it includes a bat who you consider to be safe, you're okay to say yes because of all the pitching you have coming up behind them. So it's hard to know what the what the uh, bullpen will look like because there's a lot of factors here. At some point, the baby-faced aces are going to be pushed by the baby-faced aces downstairs. By Nider, by Yamamoto, by Sixto. It's going to happen, which means that whoever makes it and survives, survives. If not, you go to the bullpen. And if the person pushing you under isn't good enough to push you out, they end up in the bullpen as well. I hate the whole concept that it's so easy to change a, a starter to a bullpen piece. I really, I don't like that concept, but they have so much pitching. So they're either going to be in the pen or they're going to be traded away for assets. So again, to recap the what quote unquote rebuilding type of questions, when does Miami compete again? I say nearing 500 by next year, nearing a wildcard team by 2021, competing, competing, 85 plus win team by 2022. How many of the current roster make up the next core? My answer is around 40%. Who is the 40%? Brian Anderson, Jorge Adforo, and Luis Brinson. Sandy Alcantara, Caleb Smith, Trevor Richards, and Pablo Lopez, Tyron Guerrero, Nick Anderson, Tyler Kinley, and of course, trades could change that. Now the fourth question, and it really does bring a smile to my face because I genuinely love this question. Which previous Marlins teams does this one remind you of? Again, thank you to whoever sent this, sent this, and here's my answer. So go Google it or go look it up if you're not driving. 1995, 1999, 2007, and 2013. They are the perfect comparison group or case study group for what this current Marlins team reminds me of. I'll start off here. The average win-loss of the teams that I just listed was 66 and 96. So I'm not here to sell you a silver lining or the, the beauty of win-loss or I'm not painting rainbows on the Marlins of when I'm comparing them. I'm comparing them to teams that weren't good at all. But what were they? They were teams that had young pieces, mostly unproven young pieces, and they were all teams that were only a handful of years, one to three years away from competing. Do we want proof? Let's do it. You'll hear names for each year that I want to call out. And what you're going to hear is that they're, they were young, for the most part unproven, some were proven already, young, unproven talent. Some made it, some didn't. 1995, Charles Johnson, Gary Sheffield, Quilvio Veras, Jesus Taveras. 1999, Luis Castillo, Alex Gonzalez, Mike Lowell, Preston Wilson, Ryan Dempster, AJ Burnett, LeVon Hernandez, Vladimir Nunez. 2007, Hanley Ramirez, Miguel Cabrera, Jeremy Hermida, Duntro Willis, Rick Vandenhurt. Oh, I loved Rick Vandenhurt when he came up. Scott Olson and Sergio Mitre. 2013, Logan Morrison, Adeni Hitchabaria, Giancarlo, then Mike Stanton. 
Ozuna, Yelich, Henderson Alvarez, Nathan Avaldi, Jacob Turner. Four teams that averaged 66 wins, which had a mix of young players who you should be focusing on at the major league level if you were in 1995, 99, 07, and 2013. Sounds familiar? Some who made it. Some who didn't. If you want to look at teams that remind you of this current team, it's these four. Fans in 1995, 1999, 07, and 13 weren't happy with their win-loss production. Fans in those years were ready to give up. Fans in those years were frustrated. Fans in those years wouldn't log into podcasts because they didn't exist. Little did those fans know they were two to three years away from competing. Because 95, two of the four that I listed became a core for 97. 99, a good amount of the ones I listed became a core for 2003, minus three or four of them that either left the team or were traded or did not pan out. 2007 and 2013 did not become championship winners, but they became competitive teams. That 07 team was a year away from becoming competitive. 08, 09, 2010 were fun years in Miami. 2013 also never became a competitive team, but 2016, a lot of the players that were there, obviously, because everyone still remembers the beautiful outfield that we had, became something special. Don't, don't pretend like Marcelo Zuna had an easy transition. Remember, he was uh, not relegated. He was demoted a few times to the minors. We don't know what we have in place right now because we're currently in 1995, 99, 2007, 2013. I'm not saying that it's going to lead to a championship like two of those did. I'm not saying that it's going to lead to failure like two of those did. But the teams did compete. And they competed because they had young players to develop and they had young players to look at. When you turn into Fox Sports Florida to watch the Miami Marlins, try to understand that the win-loss is not what this year is about. What this year is about is the Charles Johnsons, the Luis Castillos. It's about finding the Jeremy Hermitas and seeing if they really want to invest that much time in them or not. That's what this year's about. It's about the development. Try to grasp that. It'll make this entire campaign a lot easier to sit with. And remember that each one of those teams was a handful of years away from walk-offs, victories, no-hitters, and in two cases, world titles. The news. Wells Dunsbury, who was fantastic, seriously, I love you, man, um, go look him up on Twitter, is a writer for Sun Sentinel. He sent out a tweet per Fox Sports Florida that streaming of Marlins games was up 86%. Now, listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fool. I understand that that has a lot more to do with the fact that more people are streaming than it has to do with more people watching the Marlins. But 86% of an increase is still significant because there has to be 86% of individuals that want to watch the Marlins. They're streaming. They're choosing streaming over TV. I understand that. But the numbers wouldn't be that impressive if people did not care. Sometimes I don't even care to log into the Fox Sports Florida Go app. So someone has to care to be going into that. Oh, but Danny, the TV ratings say otherwise. Actually, no, they don't. TV ratings are up 6% from last year at the same time. 
That's significant. I'm not saying that you know it's bottom of the league still, but I'm not. I'm not. I've told you from the beginning we shouldn't really be competing the Marlins, comparing the Marlins to the league right now. We need to be comparing the Marlins to themselves. They are starting from the ground up, so an increase of six percent is significant, especially when Chip Bowers is out there working on working the best he can to bring in a new TV contract because the one that was negotiated by the previous ownership is a joke. Marlins six percent up TV ratings, eighty six percent up streaming go follow wells dunsbury on twitter two gary cooper per joe Fersaro is back and per box scores and he is crushing the ball in his rehab assignment the interesting thing per joe is that he is playing first good <laughs> good i need gary cooper to get consistent at bats in this lineup it'll lengthen the lineup but also gary cooper's not someone that i care to give up on either the rebuilding year is the year you find gems. And when you have contact and power ability like he does, albeit inconsistent because of injuries, you want to see him get at bats. Three, Sixto Sanchez is apparently on track to pitch within the next few weeks. That'll be exciting, but that'll be covered more so on earning their stripes. Fourth, I am shooting to have a fan guest either next week or the following week. I have a list of individuals that have reached out, but I want to continue to say this. If you want to be a guest, let me know on Twitter. Let me know on Fish Stripes. Send me an email so that we could set it up. And lastly, I started off saying thank you for all the feedback. I started off saying that we have so much right now that we're not even going to get to it for like three weeks. That does not mean I want you to stop. Give me more feedback. Give me more segments you want to see. And as always, please give me conversation topics that you want me to talk about in the dialogue segment. I hope I answered the ones that you gave me this week. I hope to hear responses for the ones that we discussed this week. But make sure you keep them coming. All right. My wife is downstairs, and I think she has finished cooking. Um, so I probably don't want to get in trouble. I will make sure to continue being in contact with all of you. I appreciate all of you. Make sure to follow us and subscribe on anywhere that podcasts are found. Google, Spotify, iTunes. Make sure to follow me on All Right Miami. On Twitter, follow our work on fishstripes.com and uh, go fish. <laughs>